You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And greetings, Earthlings. Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome <laughs> to Common Descent Podcast, episode 32. Yeah. Today, our subject of discussion is the Naracourt Caves of Australia. The Naruto Caves of Australia. The Naruto Caves of Australia. <laughs> no, sir. No, that is not what it is. The Naracourt Caves are a series of caves in South Australia that host among the world's most impressive collections of recent Pleistocene, late Pleistocene mm -hmm, mm -hmm. aged fossils, including lots of tiny creatures, lots of cool Australian extinct megafauna, and so on. The Narakurt Caves are one of the best fossil sites in the world. In fact, they are designated as such. More on that in a bit. Very cool. And they offer us a way to study the last uh, several hundred millennia of time through Australia that we simply don't get elsewhere in the continent or pretty much anywhere else, you know, most places, other, otherwise in the world. Yeah, it's, it's exciting for Australia because they their fossil record is very sparse in other areas. Yes, this is very true. So this is an exciting fossil site for that reason. Very cool. This episode was also requested by Adam on Facebook. So thank you, Adam. We hope you enjoy. Thank you indeed. We are going to talk a bit about the history of the caves, how they were found, how they are investigated, and what sort of things are found there. Very cool. But before we get on to that, we have a few announcements. First and foremost, welcome to April. Yeah, this is our first one in April. It sure is. And a wonderful time to remind everybody that your monthly allotment of Common Descent content comes to you in large part through the charitable donations of our patrons on Patreon. Yes. If you would like to join us on Patreon and get all sorts of fun behind-the-scenes extra goodies, check us out at the Common Descent Podcast Patreon, and thank you to everybody who is there already. Keep everything. though. You, you are the ones that keep the world turning for us. Yes, <laughs> exactly. You are our lever. <laughs> Speaking of thanking our listeners, our survey has concluded. Yeah. We got a ton of great responses. We won't talk too much about it now, but we will be doing a special follow-up episode. Indeed. Where we will be discussing some of the things we learned on the survey and answering some of your questions that you submitted to us. Speaking of upcoming things, we are doing a special thing mm -hmm. on YouTube, right? As a follow-up to an earlier episode about sloths, we have been in contact with a handful of sloth researchers who have agreed to join us for a conversation about sloths. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. Yeah, so stay tuned. We'll we'll put more information about that on Twitter and Facebook and all over the place. We will be announcing it more officially later on with more details. So stay tuned for that. Keep your eyes open. 
And finally, this is episode 32, which means before too long, we will be planning episode 35. Yarp. And if you've been listening for a while, you know that every episode that ends in the number five, we have a tradition that we decided last time there was an episode <laughs> that ended in the number five, that those episodes are extinction episodes. All about death. All about death and <laughs> cool stuff about that. <laughs> We did the end Cretaceous, the end Triassic, the end Pleistocene mass extinctions, and now we are looking forward to the next episode. So if there is an extinction topic you want to hear about, let us know. What do you want to hear about in episode 35? And if there's one you've been waiting for, now's the time to speak up. Absolutely. <gasps> but that is all for the announcements. Over and done with real quick. Before we get to our main topic, every episode, as usual, we like to take some time to discuss some of the recent news items that have come out in the world of paleontology and evolution and such, and discuss them. Yes. So, let us start with Will. That's me. Well, That's my... my, that's my name. Yeah. I'm Will. Oh, this, this is very convenient. Did you uh. hire a new guy? <laughs> <laughs> is he prettier than me? <laughs> <laughs> so my first bit of news is about a injury on a dinosaur with a very new look at it. Ooh. It is fossil evidence of an infection in a sauropod rib that was diagnosed using X-ray micro CT scans. Cool. The article I'm reading for this news bit is from The Conversation, and it's by Patrick Randolph Quinney who is one of the researchers on this project, so we're getting kind of an inside look from him. Now, the focus of this research is from a specimen uh, of a sauropod from the lower Jurassic, talking 200 to 170 million years ago, and it is the Fangosaurus hunai. The, one of the ribs of this particular specimen that they were looking at on the right side of the body had an injury in it that they wanted to take a closer look at. Uh, this dinosaur is a sauropod. Once again, the large, long-necked dinosaurs uh, from the Jurassic. This was a moderate-sized one, about six meters. So not the yeah, ridiculous... For a sauropod. Exactly. Not the ridiculously huge ones. And they estimate just under two tons. So it's not a... Ah, it's it's one of those poultry. where... Yeah, yeah. It's it meh. <laughs> The they artistic reconstruction showed it as one of the ones that actually uh, may have been able to raise up on the hind legs. So one of the smaller, more interesting, you know, more mobile. This one is a, an older specimen. It was actually excavated in 1997. And the injury was noticed. It's a significant divot in one of the ribs toward the toward the shoulder on the right side. When you look at it from the side, it's like a cookie cut out of the front of the rib that almost goes halfway in. Yeah, and then when you cool. look at it from the front, there's this teardrop impression, like hole into the rib, and pretty obviously an injury. They were able to tell that there was likely an infection there, but they didn't know much about the internal structure of the wound. And typically, to look at the inside, you would have to destroy the rib. Yep. Instead, they used micro or X-ray microcomputed tomography. Mm -hmm. which is also known as micro-CT. 
And this is effectively a 3D x-raying system. It's very similar to the CT scanning you typically think about, but on a much more focused scale. And it's so high detail that they are actually able to reconstruct the internal shape as well as the cellular structure of the rib around that wound. Yeah, micro CT, one of the up and coming exciting new technologies yes. that are being used more and more these days. Absolutely. So that's it's being reused on a lot of fossil injuries now because of the detail it reveals. The initial impressions they got while looking at this was that the wound showed signs of infection and it had both signs of bone damage and new bone growth. Mm -hmm. And what this told the researchers is that the infection was a long-lasting one that was still in effect up to the dinosaur's death. So this is something that had been going on in this dinosaur's life for a little while. Yeah, it had time to, the bone started to heal and grow yeah, again. Yeah, but was still being damaged by the infection. So it was fighting wow. it back, but it wasn't, it had not won yet. Huh. Now the infection that they were able to, or that they diagnosed with this new up close, this microscope view of an x-ray is osteomyelitis. And this is a infection caused by the presence of uh, pus producing bacteria inside gross. the bone marrow. Hmm. I said gross. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's nasty. It's nasty. So it was basically a pustule inside the bone, Blah. which yeah, it just sounds awful. Uh, this can be introduced through the blood to the bone marrow or through a direct wound like this one. You know, so something actually entering the bone can directly introduce this kind of bacteria. And it can has a lot of things it can cause. So this dinosaur was not a happy one, very likely. It can cause fever, fatigue, nausea, discomfort, and can even enter the brain and, as they say, accelerate death. <laughs> so... Man. If your accelerated death lasts longer than four hours, <laughs> you're you're probably yep, dead. It's you know, you should That's have seen you should have seen a doctor. You should have seen a doctor. <laughs> now this is very cool because this is actually the oldest. If this is an accurate uh, diagnosis, it would be the oldest case in the fossil record of this infection and the second ever found in a sauropod. That's really cool. Yeah, this is this all falls under this this realm of paleopathology. Mm -hmm. So pathology refers to the study of ancient, you know, of, of any kind of disease yep. or, or injury or damage. And it's always fascinating to me that you can see that in ancient bones, especially when you can get that inside microscopic view of mm -hmm. it. And this is, so they, they were saying that one of the cool things is that Hopefully, this will be able to be used on previously di diagnosed injuries or infections. It may open up new looks or re-diagnose things now that we can go back through and use this new tool on everything. Very exciting. One of the side uh, comments that was made on this injury, and this is definitely not uh, 100%, but they said that the shape of the injury did match previous findings of bite or claw marks due to its tear-shaped, you know, uh, formation. Ooh. So it this could very likely be a sign of a predatory attack that the animal survived but may have ultimately succumbed to or may have pushed it closer to death due to the infection. Right, right. Uh, they don't know who, <clears throat> of course, because it's, it's just a hole. 
So yeah. you can't be sure. They say there is a, a Sinosaurus could be a very likely culprit that is a, a large enough predator in that area from that time. This is the Yuan province in China. So that's uh, where yeah, they, yeah. they're looking in. This is a two meter tall predator that is very similar to Dilophosaurus. It was actually classified originally as a species of Dilophosaur. Right. So it lived nearby, could have, could have done it. Could have very well. And so the, they point out that if this is a predator attack, not only is it now a pathology case, but it's also a behavioral and dinosaur interaction case, which is, you know, equally as rare to actually get evidence of animals interacting with each other. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting case of an interaction between possibly an herbivorous dinosaur, a carnivorous dinosaur, and a bacteria. Yes, uh, or a bacterial infection. Very cool. It's a cool sort of intersection of things that you... It's the kind of thing that, that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find in the fossil record. But if you know what you're looking for... And I'm excited to see how this micro-CT scanning... What, what else it will reveal as it continues to be used. Because the images... You know, when we put the post up, go to the article. Because the images of the bone are ridiculous. Yeah, seeing bone cells in a dinosaur fossil is really crazy. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> My first bit of news is not about dinosaurs. It is about the opposite of dinosaurs, but by which I mean humans. I don't know why they're the opposite I, of dinosaurs. I mean, what some people call some humans dinosaurs. It's once you this stop learning how to use a smartphone, <laughs> it's, it's, that term gets thrown around. In British Columbia... The oldest footprints of humans in North America have been discovered. Pretty cool stuff. Interesting. This is research presented by Duncan McLaren et al. in PLOS One. And I'm reading from the article by Laura Gegel on Live Science. Archaeological sites are not particularly common in this area of Western Canada. But these researchers, this group, was searching in 2014 in the intertidal zone of the island shoreline. The reason being that sea level was lower back then. So they were trying to look, basically they're looking at sediments that are under the tide level in this part of the island. And they found originally a single footprint. And then when they went back in the following two years, they found 28 more footprints wow. that came in three different sizes that they are interpreting as two adults and one child walking across the beach sand. This is actually soil, ancient soil, a paleosol, now buried beneath beach sands. The age was determined by two nearby pieces of wood, which were carbon dated to around 13,000 years ago. Convenient. This is pretty interesting because human presence on the west coast of North America only goes back to about that far. There are artifacts from Washington State, the oldest evidence of humans, the definite evidence of humans on uh, the West Coast of North America is in Washington State, and that dates back to not quite 14,000 years ago. The oldest Canadian evidence of human presence is artifacts in a cave in British Columbia only 12,500 years ago. So these footprints give us a very rare glimpse at what humans were doing and the fact that they were doing anything at all on the western coast of Canada as early as 13,000 years ago. I love the way they found it by having to wait for the tide to go out to look at lower sea levels is 
very cool. Yeah, you got to know where your fossils were potentially being made. And they were actually looking more likely for artifacts, you know, for for physical remains, because footprints, it's very difficult to know where you're going to find footprints. They're, They're not as easy to predict as more hard physical remains like bones and artifacts. Indeed. In this case, however, they found footprints well-preserved enough. The article, the the actual, the life science article comments that they were able to assign U.S. shoe sizes <laughs> to the feet that they, one of them, the smallest one is a junior size eight. <laughs> the next one was a junior size one or a woman size three. All right. And the last one is a woman size eight or a men size seven. <laughs> so <laughs> if we need, if they needed shoes... <laughs> Here you go. We gotcha. The fact that this is on an island also raises the question of how people were hopping around from island to island back then. Boating is obviously not unheard of for that uh, potential travel. But the really exciting thing is that this is, as the article says, indisputable evidence for human presence along the Pacific coast of Canada right at the end of the last glacial maximum. So it is a rare example of very, very early evidence of humans and the oldest human trackways on the continent. That's really cool. Yes, very exciting to find things like this. Neat. As we said before, trackways are always interesting because they it gives you a whole new level of connection to the to the specimen because it's made during behavior, so it's it it kind of leaves behind a, a stamp of their activity you know, more so than the bones do. And like the fact that we can put sizes to these, you know, immediately starts to put things into perspective. Yeah, it's it's more than just a person dropped this tool. It's somebody walked right here. And I don't I don't know if the assigning shoe sizes was something that the authors of the that the, the actual people who wrote the paper did, or if that's something that live science asked for and then they (laughs) you know i don't know exactly how that came about but whoever's idea that was that's fantastic absolutely because what what a cool way to allow us to relate to Mm -hmm. these people uh with whatever you know walking off their boat on calvert island back at the end of the ice age very cool well i am bringing things back to our proper orientation by talking about dinosaurs again (laughs) I hoped we had gotten away. (laughs) Are we not done with this? Is this trend not over? (laughs) Uh, Dinosaurs are old news. (laughs) Literally. I would like to talk about uh, some herbivores now. Specifically, the Ceratopsians are horned and frilled dinosaurs. Those are pretty cool. Yeah. So this is a study looking at the usage of particularly the ornamentation on the frills. Uh, they wanted to look at whether or not species identification among the animals themselves was a valid explanation for why these frills had gotten so so ornate. Interesting. Yeah, so this is a a research done by Andrew Knapp uh, et al. in the Proceedings of Royal Society B. And I'm reading this article by uh, Gretchen Vogel in Science. And the reason for this research is that Triceratops and their cousins, the Ceratopsians, well known for their three horns on the face and the large frill at the back of the head, a trend has been noticed 
you know, long ago, this is a very a noted trend that the frill has many ornamentations in some species, and over time, like over the time of this group existing, tend to get more ornate. And the exact reason for that, de- those decorations and the level of ornateness, is not exactly known and not exactly agreed upon. Mm-hmm. Some explanations, pretty straightforward, like defense and competition display among each other, is are, are come up very often. But one recent suggestion that's a little bit more, you know, uh, unexpected for what you would typically think of is that they may have been used for species to identify their own kind when they shared territory or space with multiple species of frilled dinosaurs yeah so if you're out in the 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 dinosaur plains of north america or wherever and there's multiple similar looking species say all right well my species i know that from a even from a distance my species the one with the crazy horns on the side and the other one is the one that doesn't have that exactly this case may be it's like birds having different calls to identify that I'm a robin, you don't want the blue jay over there, you know. Right, right. It's the same concept, but on a visual and physical scale. To test this, uh, it's a very extensive study that they did. They looked at 46 species total from uh, looking at a total of 350 different characteristics of this ornamentation and on the frill, which makes up about 1,035 different species pairs. So comparing one species to another species, they ended up wow. with over a thousand pairs for comparison. Very cool. Absolutely. Now, the, there's a huge variety among these, both in time and space. 38 of these pairs were known to occupy the same space and the re- same time and region together. Okay. So we have 38 Useful. pairs that we know were encountering each other and potentially having to tell each other apart. And then we have 63 other of the pairs that we know lived at the same time and continent, but have no direct evidence that they occupy. They haven't been found together at a site, so we don't know they were occupying habitats together. But they very well could have been due to their time and uh, where they lived. And then the rest are mostly going to be different times, different places. So we have ones that were interacting ones that were likely interacting and ones that were definitely not interacting and where they're going to look for a trend, the ones that are closer to each other and living alongside each other, if this is true, should be more distinct from one another. Yeah, they should have evolved specifically to not look like their neighbors. Yeah, we should see a trend that the the closer they get time and space-wise in living with each other, there should be more distinctness between the two frills. And when they ran the test, they didn't find any trends in distinctiveness. Interesting. They found no pattern. The ones that overlapped time and space-wise were just as distinct as ones that never met each other. So there was no real patterns forming for this trait, uh, which goes against the hypothesis that it was being used as a species identification for individuals. Uh, Interesting. They they lean toward that it's much more likely interspecific competition display. Yeah, sexual display, things like that. Yeah, sexual social displays. Mine's bigger, mine's prettier. Therefore, 
I am yeah. I am the best male. Be with me. Yes. Won't you be mine? <laughs> <laughs> do you do you like my frill? Check yes or no. Yeah. This reminds me of the ankylosaur, yes. the upside down ankylosaur yes. piece that we talked about a little while ago in the sense that you know, for me, I, you know, I've heard about this question of how do we explain ornate features, mm-hmm. is it sexual display, is it species recognition? And I've never really taken to the species recognition explanation, mm-hmm. just because for me, it always see, oh, well, you know, sexual display is such an obvious answer. Yes. And I think that it's a very easy one to jump to, and it's very likely correct, but also science works by testing hypotheses. And I think that this is a really cool example, especially, you know, we talk a lot about how in paleontology, one of the biggest limiting factors is sample size. Yes. Here's a case where they were able to take advantage of the fact that we have tons of ceratopsian fossils to do a really detailed statistical test of this hypothesis, which is really, even though the answer is probably not that's still a very, very interesting result. Yes. And when it's, and because like you said, the sample size here is fantastic. The numbers are ridiculous. You know, almost 50 species, over 300 characteristics, over a thousand comparisons happening. Yeah. For, for a fossil record, that's insane. That's awesome. And yes, it seems, it can seem disappointing that, you know, it, it in movies, it often would be portrayed that, well, we were testing to find this out and it failed, but it's not that it failed, they found out that, no, this isn't the case, which would lean things closer toward one of the other reasons. Yep. Negative data is still data. Absolutely. And so this was, I, yeah, I, I very enjoyed, very much enjoyed, and it, it definitely reminded me of the ankylosaur uh, uh, research. Yeah. Good on you, chaps. <laughs> Answering the tough questions. <laughs> you know what we don't talk enough about on this podcast? Squamates. <laughs> That's right. Lizards and snakes. My last bit of news is about a four-eyed fossil lizard. That is cyberbullying. Now, <laughs> somebody called a somebody called the first lady. This lizard's in peril. Now that might sound like headline clickbait. Actually, it's not. It's true. More on that in a second. This is a study that came from Krister Smith et al. in the journal Current Biology. And the article that I might refer to is in Gizmodo by George Dvorsky. So a little bit of background on the pineal eye. Some of you may be familiar with this notion of the some animals having a third eye on the top of their head. This is a real thing. This is sometimes called the parietal eye. It is part of the pineal organ. And the pineal organ has two functions. One is that it helps us to regulate uh, various parts of our biology, various uh, uh, time cycles, and uh, in some cases helps us to orient ourselves. But in a lot of animals, it also protrudes out the top of the head and forms a light-sensitive organ, a eye. It's picking up light and interpreting it for the brain. It's not nearly as complex as our regular eyes, but it's built in a similar fashion and it's doing a very similar job. Pineal eyes are pretty common across basal vertebrates, fish, and amphibians, but they are extremely rare, in fact, almost unheard of, in reptiles, birds, and mammals. Yeah, I mean, only one character in DBZ had it, so... 
Exactly. Yeah. The general explanation, our general understanding, is that the pineal eye was common early on, used to sense light and used to, to regulate internal stuff, but reptiles and birds and mammals lost it. Uh, in many cases, we still have the organ. It's still doing important hormonal functions, but it doesn't make an eye up at the top anymore. The exception is lizards. Liz the, the, the third eye is still very common in lizards. So, when Smith et al. were looking at the monitor lizard Saniwa incidens from around 34 million years ago, it wasn't a surprise when they CT scanned the skull for them to find an opening for the parietal eye, but it was a surprise when they found two of them. Oh, that's weird. One, not next to each other, not paired like our regular eyes, one in front of the other. Oh, that's cool. Like lined up. These are two separate organs <laughs> on the top of the head. Now, this is not the only creature that has known to have all, that to have two third eyes. <laughs> Modern day lampreys also have a pineal eye and a parapineal eye or next to the pineal eye. But what's real now, now we can speculate on function all day long. It's very, very difficult to, to guess why this lizard had two pineal, two parietal eyes. We have a hard time interpreting what modern day species are using these eyes for. So it, the, the authors don't really try to make too much of a guess as to what that is. But the really interesting thing is that having both eyes, both of these light sensing organs next to each other on the top of the head allowed the researchers to confirm that the main eye on the top of the lizard's head is not the pineal eye. <laughs> the pineal eye is the extra one. The main eye is the parapineal eye. This writes a very interesting story of lizard evolution because it suggests that what actually happened was that as birds, mammals, reptiles evolved, all of them lost the pineal eye. Lizards developed the parapineal eye as their major top-of-their-head eye structure. Earlier ancestors would have had it, right? Lampreys have it, so fish obviously can have it. But they, like mammals, also lost the pineal eye. They replaced it <laughs> with the parapineal eye. And this group of lizards their pineal organ re-evolved its light-sensing function at the top of the head. <laughs> that's really cool. This is fascinating because anytime we discover something that's unexpected is really cool. But what's really striking about this is that this is a story of a light-sensing organ, an eye, evolving, regressing, re-evolving. And it kind of raises that interesting question of, you know, there are some features that we kind of assume are super hard to evolve and thus very rarely do it. That might not be so much the case with the these simple eye-like structures. Yeah, that's very cool. It's fascinating that they're able to manipulate it so much, which raises more questions on what are you doing with it if it's like there's obviously a use if you kept it around, but then you got rid of one and then brought it back like. <laughs> so many yeah. questions there i also really love the mental image of since since they kind of lost their main 
<laughs> I and developed a secondary while everyone else was losing it is like going along with the trend, but not really. It's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm getting rid of it. It's super stupid, guys. I don't like it either. I'm, no, I never they got, liked they've it. They've got the knockoff first. Yep. And then they're like, oh, I'll just do this over here. We're just gonna, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a pineal eye, sir. Definitely not a pineal eye. No, no, I'm still cool. It's a loophole. <laughs> So and this this makes me very excited for them to CT scan more lizard skulls. Yes. I want to see who else has this feature. CT scan everything. Yes, please do. Very nice. And that's it for the news for this episode. In just a moment, we will move on to the main topic discussion of our episode. Stay tuned. So today's topic of discussion is the Naracourt Caves of South Australia. Woohoo! The Naracourt Caves are, as we mentioned before, among the world's best localities for especially late Pleistocene fossils. If you want to study the last several hundred thousand years of Australian history, this is the place to go. There are fossils of all different kinds of animals, particularly Exciting Australian megafauna, large animals from the past, important, and geologic history, which is also very important for learning about the environment and the climate and things like that. Yet one more reason to visit Australia. Well, just another one. If you're not, <laughs> if you're not already convinced by all the awesome snakes they have, <laughs> the biggest, best croc, and the best crocs. <laughs> now there's cool fossils too. <laughs> The Naracourt Caves are located in the southeast of South Australia. So they are not too far off from the Naracourt Township, and they are approximately, for those of you that know Australian geography, approximately 300 kilometers southeast of Adelaide. This is different, right? We've done an episode about a fossil site before. We did the Grey Fossil Site back in episode 14. Yes. This is a little bit different from talking about a typical fossil site, because this is technically several fossil sites. The Naracourt Cave system includes, according to the Australian National Parks website, and I reference this number because I'm sure that there are researchers who would argue with these numbers, there are approximately 23 fossil deposits in at least 13 different caves wow. throughout the region of the Naracourt Cave National Park area. Wow. The stuff in these caves has been the subject of over 60 different studies, book chapters, and more. This is a pretty popular place. <laughs> Inside the caves are the remains of well over 100 species. Like I said, big animals, small animals, plants, etc. And the deposits go back over 500,000 years. Which is significant. And range all the way to the present. Which means, now that's, that's, that's what you want. That's awesome. Like, remember the gray site? And it's, the gray site's super cool because it's fossils of this particular age are very rare in this part of the world. Well, in this case, it's, we don't just have cool fossils from a particular time frame. We have a continuous record starting in the middle Pleistocene and coming to the, to the present. And that time frame includes multiple glacial interglacial cycles 
it includes the last glacial maximum, right? The peak of glaciation at the end of the Ice Age. It includes the arrival of humans on the Australian continent, or at least the timing of the arrival of humans. And, perhaps related, it includes the late Pleistocene megafaunal extinctions. It's, you can see why it's so famous. It's like if, a, if you asked a paleontologist to describe an ideal case study, you know, fossil deposit site, these would be all the things on the top of the list for what they would request. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, <laughs> continuous collection from over a period of time up to recent, covering major events and in an area where the fossils otherwise are often rare. Yeah. And not only is it you know, it'd be one thing if you had one site covering this range, but here you have multiple deposits, which means you can compare between them. It's it's a huge sample size. Again, talking about sample size, this <laughs> is an excellent sample size of fossils. Well, it makes statistics work. Yes. And it's located in Australia, which is very cool because not only because Australia's awesome. I hear from the lucky sons of guns who have gotten to go to Australia. But also, Australia's a weird place. Mm -hmm. Evolutionarily, Australia's creatures have a very long history of doing weird stuff. It's an isolated landmass, and so evolution has gone off in strange directions. There's also a lot of exciting recent evolution of ecosystem and climate and... Uh, particularly human activity in very recent uh, time, to compare with the past. Yeah, a lot of up recent Australia. upheavals with how yes. things were going. So the Nara Court Caves are a very exciting place for any paleontologist interested in what the world has been doing for the last 500,000 years. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the caves themselves, starting with their formation. So let's go through some history of these caves. The caves themselves are thought to have formed around one million years ago, and they formed the way that caves typically do by percolating through limestone. So this is within a formation called the Gambier limestone, which caves, you know, caves open up over time as water tracks through and it follows the joints and the cracks and the natural weaknesses and opens up these vast underground caverns. Once this happens, once you have openings in cave formations, sand and soil can enter the openings. And that's how caves collect sediment and it's how they collect fossils, is that over time, sediment gets in, it builds up in layers, and if you're lucky, it's you're also bringing in living things to leave behind fossil remains. Yes. In this case, the caves began doing this, began collecting outside material, over 500,000 years ago and have been doing it ever since. There are a few different types of caves that you get in, in, in the sense of different ways they collect fossil material. In some caves are, you know, sort of classic, there's a big entrance, you could walk right into it. In those cases, they're collecting soil and sand and whatever else, pretty obviously, and animals can just walk in and walk back out. So those are the kinds of caves where you can find the remains of shelters or predator dens, which can be excellent ways to accumulate fossils, yes. particularly of small, tasty animals. In other cases, you can have what are sometimes called window entrances, where it's a higher up entrance that allows 
sediment and things to come in and can also end up being places where you'll get fossils, not only of whatever creatures get into the cave and are living there, but particularly things like owl pellets, right? If, if you have a cave that's a great roosting place for birds of prey and they're pooping out bones, coprolites, remember, or owls are great for this because owls cough up these little like gift wrapped these <laughs> bundles of bones. Perfect, perfect fossil capsules. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then another way you can get fossils accumulating in a cave is in my favorite, the classic pitfall caves. Yep. These are caves where the entrance is a hole in the ground and sediment just falls straight in along with any animals that happen to tumble into the cave. Yeah, you're not watching your step. Just go straight through a hole in the ground into a bigger hole. Yes. And what you tend to get in these caves is a cone of sediment that builds up underneath. Like, like an, if you imagine the, the hourglass, yes, the bottom of the exactly what I was about to say, like an hourglass. Yep. And it builds up in layer by layer over time, and it's collecting the bones of whatever either an animal falls in and dies, or it dies outside and gets washed in by the rain or anything like that. Large animals can fall in too. You know, that large animals have their clumsy moments. I learned that these caves are apparently particularly rich in kangaroo bones. <laughs> it has been argued that kangaroos are more susceptible to falling in pitfall holes. <laughs> it's the image of a kangaroo, just a group of kangaroos bouncing along. It's just boom, boom, and then there's only two out of the three. <laughs> and it's just a dust cloud. George? <laughs> yeah just I, there you go hopped <laughs> one last hop yeah I mean, it makes it makes sense when your mode of travel puts all of your weight into every step you're not yeah you're you you're ev <laughs> both feet are landing at the same time everywhere you go if you land in a wrong spot like a hole in the ground there's not really a way to catch yourself like you yeah, are committing I, fully i'll be honest i have not heard I, I, did, I didn't get a chance to look into the arguments for yeah, why yeah. kangaroos are susceptible, but that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Very, very interesting. More on that. If you know, dear listeners, if you study kangaroos, let us know why kangaroos are so bad at staying out of holes. It's because they can't go backwards and they, they commit and they just won't admit to their mistakes. And they can't look up. Yeah. <laughs> so the fossils were accumulating... I'm sorry, the caves were accumulating fossils. The fossils were accumulating in the caves for hundreds of thousands of years. The caves have been known to humans for a long time. People have been in Australia. People are exploratory. But the first vertebrate fossils ever reported from the caves were reported in 1858 by Father Julian Tennyson Woods, who found a lot of small vertebrate, you know, bones of small animals in Blanche Cave, uh, these later turned out to be owl deposits. So things left behind by owls. Yes. Prey, most likely. Over the years, as more and more of these caves have been explored and discovered, there have been more fossils found. They've also been a source for guano mining, ah. because guano is a very important resource. Collect the whole set. Yes. <laughs> they are favorite places for explorers and cavers. And, very significantly... 
the Narakord Caves are huge tourist attractions. Caves are fun. So these are caves. Yeah, no, absolutely they are. These are caves that get a lot of attention, a lot of traffic, a lot of uh, people walking through them. But the science of the Narakord Caves, the fossil science, really started to take off after the discoveries of bones in what's called Victoria Cave. In 1969, the cave was discovered back in the late 1800s. It's been open to the public since the late 1800s. Wow. But it was in 1969 that cavers led by Grant Gartrell and Rob Wells discovered an enormous deposit of sediment and fossils in the cave. So to zero in on this particular cave for a moment, the main area that they found the fossils in is called the main fossil chamber. This is a huge room. Yeah, very creative. I, I was about to say, I love the practicality <laughs> of the name. <laughs> yep. And the, the, the one where we found this fossil. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they named the chambers like Friends episodes. Yes, yes, yes. The one with the kangaroo bones. <laughs> now, I should mention that for authenticity's sake, uh, it's probably best if everybody imagines all of these descriptions being given in an Australian accent, <laughs> which I will not endeavor to do because... As I mentioned last episode, I have been yelled at before by Australians. Yes. <laughs> Not for that reason. For pronouncing things wrong. Yeah, exactly for that reason. <laughs> Once was enough. <laughs> I don't want it. I don't want it again. Australians are scary. <laughs> they got all those venomous snakes. <laughs> Giant crocs. They know the difference between real knives and... <laughs> <laughs> Main fossil chamber is over 50 meters long. So 150 feet plus for those of you back here in the States. And it is an accumulation of pit sediment. So it's a it's one of those pit caves where sediment was coming in from the top, collecting in layers over time. In this case, this was a cone that was building up over hundreds of thousands of years. There is a record of hundreds of thousands of years in this accumulation cone in this chamber. That's amazing. The entrance is since sealed off. In fact, the, the, the sediment filled up <laughs> and blocked off the entrance long ago. That's, that's really cool. Digging through this mound, researchers have found, in the time since, tens of thousands of specimens in this site, including more than 100 species of vertebrate animals. Wow. The initial discovery of this chamber is you'll see it i have seen it remarked as the spark right this is sort of what catalyzed more and more fossil research to get done in this cave not that it's the only cave with cool fossils mind you there are also other chambers in victoria cave uh very well known there's a couple of chambers known as the upper and lower ossuaries which i learned while researching this that those chambers were featured in david attenborough's life on earth series in the 70s oh cool and if David Attenborough thinks it's worth visiting, then, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I value his opinion in these matters. <laughs> he seems like a cool dude. <laughs> Who knows what's happening. Yeah, he's a hip guy. He's with it. <laughs> Over the years, there has been... Uh, there, there's actually a long history of how the land around these caves has been designated. Uh, it, National Park designation, various different... Uh, uh, names that have been put onto it, but it was in 1994 that the Naracourt Caves became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. This is a big deal. 
It was actually designated along with Riversley fossil sites elsewhere in Australia as part of the Australian Fossil Mammal Sites, UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Mm -hmm. Again, clever naming. <laughs> Being a UNESCO World Heritage Site means uh, a lot of great things, but mainly that the sites are now nationally protected. Excavation is regulated. How people are allowed to enter and utilize this land is regulated. It is protected and managed under national legislation. And you can imagine that's a big deal for a site with such incredible natural history behind it. Extremely. That's, that's, a, that's a major step toward things not just disappearing. Yes. The Burgess Shale is another example of a UNESCO World Heritage Site that was named such because of its fossil deposits. Cool. Among the criteria that allowed these sites to be named UNESCO World Heritage are their outstanding examples representing major stages of Earth's history and key stages in the evolution of ecosystems of one of the world's most isolated continents. Nice. So that's great news for paleontologists who want to work there because it means that you are now... Right? Remember when we talked a while back about uh, the monuments here in the U.S.? Yes. That are losing land and losing their protection under the, the the government this is a big deal if you want to study someplace and make sure that the fossils are keep, kept safe yeah because the 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 major thing is it's not a fast process to study a fossil site you know gray fossil site has been there for nearly 20 years and yep. still only the surface has been scratched so if you have a undetermined you know not significant amount of time to look at it you may never find that breakthrough or really get enough to actually know what there is to be known from a site but having it protected for years and years where you can guarantee to come back to it is very significant for the research absolutely and it's interesting you make that comparison with the gray site being you know slow going these caves are still Re revealing new things all the time they've been known for well over a century and for decades people have been actively going to them to get fossil remains and yeah the, a very small percentage of these caves is estimated to have actually been explored for the purpose of fossil excavation that always baffles me when it comes to caves in general whether they're you know whenever you read something i'm like oh there's this many miles of caves you know under tennessee and you then you'll they'll be like oh yeah and we we estimate that there's probably another blank amount of miles that we haven't actually uncovered yet and it's like how is the ground holding itself up like <laughs> there's so many caves and so many like caves are way more expansive than a lot of people realize yeah. and once you get a a major karst topography you know cave yielding you know bit of geography it can be ridiculous in how much can be hidden within a fairly small area. Absolutely. And that's not even mentioning that, you know, that giant cone of sediment in the middle of one cave. Yeah. And in, in, in the main fossil chamber in Victoria Cave, that the fossil bearing deposits are several meters worth <laughs> wow. of sediment. Wow. That's, you could fill a room with it easily. Like your bedroom easily could be filled with that stuff. Yes, and when you're digging in a cave, I've dug in caves, and you dig in caves, and it's a very 
you have to be very meticulous. You're going very slowly. You're making, especially when you're searching for tiny things. Yes. It's slow going and there's a lot to go through. That's that's one of the craziest things about cave fossils is that caves do this with everything inside them because they are so remote, much like space. It's hard to get in. And once you get in, it's hard <laughs> to get out. So unless it's at the very entrance, deeper areas of caves are untouched other than by geologic processes. Yeah. It's like when you go, if you ever get a chance, if anyone who hasn't taken a chance to do a, a tour through a cave, I 100% suggest it. I, I am not a spelunker in any sense myself. I do not like squeezing through tight spaces. I'm not oh. claustrophobic, <laughs> but as soon as the rocks start squeezing me, that's enough for me. Yeah, I think there's a difference between being claustrophobic yes. and not wanting to be stuck in a cave I'd... 100 feet below the ground. Oh, yeah, no, I've had a, <laughs> I, I had one experience of having to squeeze through stuff. And the first time I was like, if I turn wrong right now, my elbow is is not moving and the rock's not going to get out of the way. So something's got to break. No, you're not breaking that rock. It's, I, I was like, all right, this is enough for me. But just getting to walk through a cave, simple things like the pools of water and the fact that the minerals perfectly meet up with the level of the water seems unrealistic <laughs> because nothing has been able to disturb it. And the same goes for the fossils. You have ridiculous amounts of preservation a lot of the times in caves because once the fo once the animal dies they a lot of times don't even have to be buried quickly because what's going to mess with it no wind not much rain very few animals so it can just sit there and eventually it'll get buried and then there it is and caves also have a habit of being in some cases they can be very you know, they're remote. Mm -hmm. They are also a very stable temperature. Yes, yes, they're consistent. Which keep, you know, it's a great environment for preservation. It's it's very much like a collections room. Everything yes, is, is maintained at very stable levels. Yep. Very little changing. So however, I mean, there's been fossils of just like, oh, this animal died on this rock. How do you know? Because there it is. Like, yes. it's just <laughs> laying on this rock. The bones are still all in place. Yeah. And it's fun. You mentioned cave tours. Like I mentioned, the Naracourt Caves are a tourist attraction. Yeah. So today, coming up to the present, one of the things, among the things that you can do with the Naracourt Caves is they, they give tours through the caves. There are ex uh, opportunities for caving, for actual exploration outside of, you know, the standard walkthrough here with your family kind of thing. There are walking trails. It's a whole, you know, there's a park here. This is a, a tourist attracting area. There is the Wonambi Fossil Center. So they've got facilities on site, which, as we discussed in the Grayside episode, is a wonderful thing to have. It makes all the difference. And as a quick aside, fossil research is not the only kind of research that goes on here. There's also a bat observation center. Oh, cool. And then our caves. Because Bat Cave, once again, the Bat Cave. Clever, clever naming so that everybody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> bat Cave is one of only a couple of known breeding places, for example, of the southern bent-wing bat. Oh, I mean, I can understand why they would have trouble with, with bent wings. Yeah, oh, exactly. <laughs> How are they going to get from all these caves? They fly in circles. So the, this is, you know, there's a lot more to these caves than just the fossil stuff that goes on there. We, of course, are focusing on the fossil stuff because it's super cool. Yes. So, speaking of the fossil stuff, what has been found at these caves and what can they tell us about 
the past. The next half hour will be just a listing of species names. <laughs> this is it. We're just going to list species names for the next half hour. <laughs> Before we list species names for half an hour, one of the other things that's always interesting to ask about a fossil site is, you know, where, where do your dates come from? Right. Once again, in the gray site episode, we talked about how we get those dates by comparing the fossil assemblage, the animals that we're finding there with other fossil sites. One of the other nice things about having a bunch of different sites and a huge sample, like in the Naracourt system, is that you can date using tons of different methods. All throughout the caves, the, the dating is done in different chambers and different caves on different material. There's radiometric dates, there's thermoluminescence dating, there's, you, you get a great assemblage of dating samples to give you a better idea of what time periods you're actually working with. Yeah, here. lots of overlap so that you can continually confirm that the edges of this dating match up with the edges of the two on either side of it and continue to form the picture. Yeah, and back in our geologic timescale episode, we talked about correlating yes. layers and ages between different parts of the world. Here, they're doing that in the caves. Right, you can correlate this cave matches up with this cave, and the, this is our record. That's how you put that full record of five hundred thousand years of geologic history together by linking up the different layers in the different caves. Really, is a, a cool example of being able to do this. Yes, it is. But now let's talk about at least a little bit some of the fossil finds at the Naracourt Cave system. Yeah. Within the Naracourt Caves, the fossil remains, as I mentioned, include well over 100 species of animals alone. This includes mammals, reptiles, amphibians, all sorts. It also includes around 20 different species of megafauna. Which is so cool. So you'll remember from episode 25, our last extinction episode, megafauna are generally, as the name suggests, big animals. In Australia, looking at megafauna in Australia is very interesting because the megafauna in Australia is very different from the rest of the world. Indeed. In the rest of the world, you're looking at lions and tigers and bison and elephants and, you know, in the past, ground sloths yeah. and glyptodonts and things like that. Australia doesn't have those. Mm -mm. And Australia never did. <laughs> they have their own group, their own types of animals down there. So Australian megafauna is things like kangaroos and huge. ancient marsupial herbivores and giant flightless birds yes. of the past. Uh, and what's really interesting, of course, is that those giant, strange Australian creatures all experienced a mass extinction around the same time that the giant creatures everywhere else in the world experienced the mass extinction at the end of the Pleistocene. You know, in that realm of 50 to 10,000 years ago. To me, it always stands out because Australia lacks many large animals. Like, th their biggest animals uh, are the crocodiles and really kangaroos and emus. Like, there's not many animals in Australia that get what we would consider big. You know, bison right, right, or right. rhino or hippo-sized or, you know, even elk-sized. Like, they don't have a lot of that left. 
So yeah. seeing that they were there is very interesting. So in the Narakort Caves, you do get remains of some of these creatures. For example, there are lots of fossil remains of what are called diprotodontids. Yay! These were sort of bulky, big Australian herbivores. Yeah. The most famous of these is Diprotodon, the largest marsupial ever. <laughs> its remains are known from the Narakort region. This was, ba- ba- you know, big, bulky, four-legged, wandering around gathering plants, weighed as much as over two tons. Big, big. So big. So yeah, no, this is like rhinoceros. Yes. Big. It's not the only diprotodontid. There's also uh, one that is well known from Narakort Caves called Zygomaturus, which has been likened to a small hippo. <laughs> and there's one, once again, making those grayside comparisons. There is a diprotodontid marsupial known from the region called Palorchestes, which has been called the marsupial tapir. Oh, nice. Uh, there is, you'll notice as we continue to go on, there is a habit of naming marsupials <laughs> the marsupial this thing yeah the marsupial <laughs> like, placental <laughs> yeah exactly this isn't a tapir it's not even close to a tapir it's a marsupial but uh, and it's actually all i kind know of, is placental so I all i know is placentals what what is that it's the marsupial bear i mean it's, it's kind of like a bear all right good enough but it has a pouch marsupial bear <laughs> and it's funny because palorchestes is big bulky had big claws and powerful front limbs possibly for digging for roots and stuff yeah we've seen this pattern before yes which if you know what a tapir is is not very much like a tapir the reason it's called the marsupial tapir is because the structure of its nasal bones makes it look like it had a little trunk makes me so happy (laughs) it might have had a little if you don't know what a tapir is dear listeners these are, we've talked about tapirs before. These are mostly South American animals that are kind of like a little round rhino, but no horn. And they have a, a short trunk on the front of their face. Yep, Just enough for them to manipulate stuff, but not quite the hose of a elephant. Yes. Drowsy from Pokemon is a tapir, yes. or at least based off of a mythical creature that is based off of a tapir. <laughs> it's taper by three degrees of separation yeah exactly (laughs) other marsupial mega herbivores that come out of australian fossil record and in the narakort caves i mentioned there are lots of kangaroos yeah lots of kangaroo fossils out of the narakort caves uh including some living members they're you know relatives of living kangaroos as well as extinct groups of kangaroos like the stenurians, the short-faced kangaroos. Yeah, we've talked about these before on the podcast. I think there was a news oh yeah uh, item at one point. Forgot uh, it about might that. actually have been the SVP episode. I think so. I think so. These are also called the walking kangaroos because <laughs> uh, it's we don't know how they got around, <laughs> but they were big, typically with flatter faces. And they included such members as Procoptodon, which is called by some the largest known kangaroo. I'm sure there are others that vie for its title. But this was about up to two meters tall. Nice. Right? Six feet or so, which is on par with modern day large kangaroos, but it was bulky. Yeah, it was, it was, it a, was a hefty. A, it was a hefty kangaroo. And there are others. There's Simosthenurus, which is a well-known Stenurian kangaroo as well. 
the number of kangaroo species that have come out of the Narakrut Caves is at least nine. Nice. So they are pretty common coming out of these caves. I, I love I love it for a number of reasons. Kangaroos are just cool animals to begin with because they're so different than what we are used to for mammals yes. in most of the other continents. But the the fact that such a specific design, like there's not many animals that use strict hopping as your main mode of locomotion. Like kangaroos can't even walk correct. They use their tail <laughs> to tripod walk. But like they have trouble walking backwards because of their weird yeah. <laughs> situation. So it's like the fact that they are so bizarre, but have been super successful in Australia for a very long time is yes. very interesting. It makes makes me just very happy. It's like, oh no, this is just what we do really well. <laughs> and it's cool to have a fossil site like this, like these this area where you can track the evolution yes. of groups like that. Every ecosystem with herbivores requires carnivores. It must be balance. The most famous marsupial carnivore is Thylacoleo, which is known, following our trend, as the marsupial lion. Thus the Leo. Despite not being a lion, it is a marsupial. <laughs> it is the largest known Australian mammalian carnivore. This was a lion-sized animal. The comparison with the lion, right? Marsupial convergent evolution is very popular. But the comparison goes as far as it having grasping front arms and retractable claws. It's like the paws look very big cat. Yeah. So this is a species that is well, quite well known from Narakort. A lot of what we know about the uh, the marsupial lion, and I'm going to stop calling it that because <laughs> it's a misnomer, Thylacoleo, comes from finds in Narakort caves. There are dozens of specimens that have come out of Narakort. We, we'll definitely need to put up cool images because yes. when you see the big herbivores, because big animals are something that we're used to in the fossil record, but because most of them are placentals, they tend to have very similar trends. But like marsupials just fundamentally look different because like when you think you know marsupial lion or just big marsupial predator the typical ones are like the tasmanian tiger and tasmanian devil which do look more similar to what we are used to but this one had like typical weird marsupial buck teeth and like <laughs> yep. big thumb claws and like it was vastly different and all the big herbivores are often reconstructed basically looking like giant wombats because yeah, that's what we know. Yeah. yeah, and that's what they're they've got the same weird wombat teeth and the same weird marsupial <laughs> stuff. Like it's it's they are fundamentally different and it's really interesting to see them fill the same niches as uh, elephants and tigers and bison and stuff. Yes. So the Narakort caves, the late Pleistocene deposits in the Narakort caves re recover, re retain preserve preserve collect the reflect <laughs> recombobulate <laughs> this ecosystem of large marsupial carnivores and large marsupial herbivores all almost all of which has since disappeared living alongside things like Geniornis, which was a large flightless herbivorous bird yeah that lived late enough to potentially interact with humans in australia also, coming out of the Narakort Caves, Megalania has been found in the Narakort Caves. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> which is now known as Varanus Priscus. Megalania was a, the largest lizard 
ever known. Well, the largest land lizard ever known. Yes, this is true. Mosasaurs would like to have a word. <laughs> this was a monitor lizard. So if you basically imagine a Komodo dragon, but twice as big. <laughs> yeah, you've got Ver- Varanus Pris- Priscus. Just unnecessarily big. <laughs> yes. Th- and this was among the megafauna. Australia had a lizard <laughs> among its megafauna. Which is, it's one of those things that once again, it sets Australia apart whilst the rest of the world, you know, big, big birds took over the role of dinosaurs after they died off. And a number of reptiles stepped in. There were big crocs, there were big snakes. Mm-hmm. But for a very long time, up until very recently, Australia was still dominated by large predatory terrestrial reptiles. Yes. Now, how dominant they were, especially alongside things like Thylacoleo. Yes. Is a question. Also, Megalania appears only to go back a few million years. So we're not sure what was there before that, if there were other reptiles uh, uh, dominating ecosystems. It's a very interesting habitat. That's another episode. (laughs) Speaking of other episodes, way back in episode three, and then again in episode 25, I mentioned that Australia was home to a giant snake called Wonambi. Yay! Up until the very end of the Pleistocene. Wonambi's full name is Wonambi Naracortensis. Nice. Giant snake from Naracort. Also found in the region. <laughs> if you haven't listened to those other episodes or if you forgot, this was a five to six meter long snake that was one of the very last survivors of a very long lasting group of giant snakes called the Matsoids. Very cool. Along with these ancient species, the Naracort Caves also preserve the remains of a lot of relatives of modern species. Fossil echidnas, koalas, mentioned kangaroos. The history of the Tasmanian devil is recorded uh, in part through the Naracort Caves, Neat. which is very interesting to have because those are the subject of a lot of modern day studies because Tasmanian devils are not doing very well. Yeah. So... Going back to episode 8, Conservation Paleontology, a lot of work in the Naracourt Caves is people looking to see what can we learn about the history of this group of Australian animals that might help us deal with them in the present. Yes. What does the evolutionary history of Tasmanian devils tell us that we can then apply to trying to preserve them today in their much, much more restricted range yeah yeah they're not found in all the places they used to be case in point naracourt is in south australia and the tasmanian devils are named for being from tasmania yep they're only from tasmania now because we you know they've been kicked out of everywhere else that they used to live yeah also in that same category the tasmanian tiger yeah the thylacine once again not a tiger it's actually it's a marsupial and that's a that one that's just a weird name it they had stripes on their butt that's <laughs> well, like the laziest the tasmanian wolf which yes. is a much better much, much better comparison. much better comparison the tiger part is one of those where it's like just listen people who name animals just because an animal has stripes <laughs> and teeth does not mean you have to call it the tiger blank we were, we were out in the african safari and saw some of those cool tiger horses yeah Oh, really cool stuff. The tiger shark? What about this one? Sand tiger shark. (laughs) (laughs) Thylacines, very famously, went extinct in the 1930s. The last known thylacine died out in the 1930s. They were present in mainland Australia up until a few thousand years ago. 
and they were present in Tasmania up until we killed all of them yep. through direct and indirect means. But the fossil record of thylacines is preserved in the Narakord caves as well. Very cool. So again, we're with you know very recent things, uh, sort of mingling with the remains of very ancient things, reaching back across the late Pleistocene. It's a very very clear transition between the then and now. Yes. And the fact that we have all of that time allows researchers to study how these species and how these ecosystems have shifted over time. For example, the Narakord Caves are the location of a lot of research focused on asking the question, what happened to all those megafauna? Yeah, where, where did they go? Why did they disappear? If you can study the fossils from before that happened and then from after that happened and everything in between you can get a much better picture. Yes. And this has been done. So there has been some research, particularly recently, that has used the Narakort cave deposits to track how communities change over time. There was a recent study, for example, by Mackin and Reed in 2014 that looked at the small mammal communities. And by looking at thousands of years going back to the last glacial maximum, as we came out of the Ice Age, as the, the glaciation receded and climates shifted, they were able to look at how these small mammal communities respond as the ecosystem changes. And because you have multiple cave sites in the Narakord system, you can even compare those. You say, all right, well, these were doing this and these were doing that. These are the common trends. These are the things that might be a little more specific to one area or the other. Very cool. Another thing that you get in cave deposits like this that reach back uh, across spans of geologic time is the actual mineral deposits themselves. So in addition to studying the organisms that live there, you know, cave formations, you know, you can study deposits, right? You can study what's in the the sediment layers. Paleochemistry. Yes, but you can also look at cave formations, stalagmites and stalactites and cave bacon and all that crazy stuff that forms (laughs) on cave walls. Those accumulate over time. Uh, If you've ever watched, you know, if you're ever in a cave, they always explain to you, this is how stalagmites form. And it's gradual deposition of minerals over many, 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 many years, building up those formations as water drops off minerals in those particular shapes, Mm -hmm. which means that they leave a record. You can study, you know, stalagmites are a great source of uh, people researching how has the chemistry of this cave changed over time. That's like when when we talked about in our micropaleontology episode, we're looking at the composition of the shells of the fossils. Teach you what the ocean chemistry, looking at the composition of the cave wall will show you how the chemistry changed. And it's a lot of the same chemicals, actually. Yeah. So it's calcium. It's, it's, it's carbonaceous uh, chemicals that are being deposited as, as these cave minerals. Good stuff. So you can also get a record of things like climate by proxy of your cave minerals, by what, what was the atmosphere like. Moisture is something you can study pretty well from cave and sediment chemistry. You know, how was, was there arid times? Were there damp times? where there are warm times, where there are cold times. This is extremely useful when you're looking at glacial cycles. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Coming in and out of cold and dry into warm and wet. 
Another thing that has been the focus of some very recent research is the plant fossil record. Uh, for quite some time, there wasn't much known about the plant record from the Narakord Caves, but some fairly recent findings have shown that there is in fact a good record, if you know where to look, of pollen and of other parts of plants like seeds and wood. Plants are an excellent, as we've talked about before, excellent source of ecological information. Yes. All right. What was the vegetation like? How was that changing over time? How does that reflect the climate? Certain plants can only grow in certain conditions, so they yes, ma exactly. they mark it for you. And with all of this different these different types of information, you can start to make comparisons and correlations. So there was another study from about ten years ago, Prado et al. And this is just an example that I happened to come across. There's been plenty of these, and I'll we'll put them in the blog post. This study combined the fossil data, right? What, what evidence do we have for remains of fossil creatures with the speleothem record? And speleothems are cave formations, in the, you know, the mineral formations in the walls. You, looking at the speleothems to get a sense of the history of moisture in the air, comparing moisture over time with fossils over time, to look at correlations between how the populations of animals changed while the glacial cycles were changing. Nice. Climate to creatures. This particular study, by comparing climate shifts over time to populations of creatures over time, found little link between climate change and megafaunal extinction. Bum, bum, bum. But please... Refer to episode 25. <laughs> it's for the smoking gun. An extensive gun. discussion. Yes. But this is where you turn for those questions. Was mm -hmm. climate involved? More recent work. This is work uh, being done by Liz Reed, who does a lot of work in this area, who is uh, among the people trying to make the most out of this. Uh, uh, one of the, the articles that I read described their initiative to compare the sediment record, the speleothem record, right, the cave formations, with pollen, larger bits of plant, animal remains, coprolite remains. <laughs> hey -oh, episode 28. There's also a, a record of charcoal. <laughs> and charcoal can give you indications of environmental changes, fire and fire, uh, how, how often, you know, you were getting fires and what that can tell you about the climate. All of this is there. So there is an initiative now with uh, people like Dr. Reed putting the record together of all of that over tens of thousands of years, getting every bit of proxy information you can get about the environment at multiple sites. That's fantastic. And some of this work includes recent discoveries. And I, I like this as a tying it back to the beginning recent discoveries found in Blanche Cave, mm -hmm. which is the cave that Woods found the first recorded uh, vertebrate fossils in, in the Naracourt area. Yes. Way back in 1857, I think he found it, and then 58, he reported it. People have gone back to that cave and dug deeper and found, oh, hey, there's a great pollen record here. That's exciting. Speaking of new things... In addition to there being, right, we found there's more plants, there's more fossils in various parts of the caves. Just recently, in 2016, 
a study came out that provided the first evidence of ancient DNA preserved in one of the caves in the Naracourt system. This is very exciting. This study, this was Greeley et al., 2016, that found DNA preserved up to 18,000 years ago. Wow. And this also was, they were using this as a starting point to get an idea of, okay, where else can we find DNA in these caves? Where else might we be able to look? How well is it going to be preserved in different parts of this region? Because while caves are a great source of ancient DNA, the area you're in also plays a role. And Australia, South Australia is not the cold, chilly... (laughs) <laughs> you know, type of area that we're normally looking for ancient DNA up north. Nah. So there's a lot of really exciting things going on in these caves going all the way back decades and decades up to the present, putting together uh, huge, expansive histories of ecosystems and environments back to the Middle Pleistocene. I really love this. The The fact that it's an amazing fossil record is awesome. But the fact that something as remote and secluded and isolated and detached, typically, from the outside world as a cave is giving us such an amazing view of the overall environment in Australia in that area during those times. Like, it's, uh, There's something so, so satisfying about that whole fact of it's just these holes in the ground that have been there for a very long time and slowly but surely they've been collecting enough yes to give us a very good look at the world around them uh and because they preserve everything they find they do collect so well that those small bits because it's it's one of those things where even in like a, a you know a natural trap style cave where things are falling in it's not like they're falling in you know 50 times a day it's yeah, like probably it's, a, it's an every now and then. Yeah, once occurrence. in a, a a blue moon that something randomly falls in, or someone smells something rotten and sticks their nose in too far. But if the cave lasts long enough, if it doesn't collapse in on itself for some reason, it will just continue to keep every single thing that falls in. So that little yeah. bit adds up. It doesn't go to waste at any way. And that's there's something very interesting and cool to me about that fact of caves which we typically never even notice on the the upper world yes here on the surface world collecting and gathering a better image of the surface than most of our surface environment fossil sites do yes and what's super interesting is that caves are a constantly evolving system yes so that during that time while you know that i've i've been in caves and i've read accounts of people digging in caves where trying to put together the geologic history of a cave is a huge challenge because opening you'll have an entrance will open up and then close and then a new entrance will open up and there was a cave that uh, i worked on in south dakota where there was an entrance that was a hole in the ground it was a pit trap we went down to the bottom there was a cone of sediment and we dug through that but then if you go down the cave a ways there was another cone coming out of the wall from an old entrance that is now closed. That's awesome. So you're constantly opening and closing and reaching the surface and collapsing in and collecting sediment. And it's just this whole super slow motion uh, shifting 
it's like a river it's like yes, how rivers yes. change over time it's the same thing it's just underground and all the while like you said they're collecting things from the surface yeah well and it's it's because it's sculpting as you said at the beginning caves are formed due to usually water carving away rock very slowly almost unperceptibly but they are constantly destroying the rock and then moving it and eventually structural failure is inevitable something's going to collapse something's going to you know that's how you get sinkholes is that's how you get the entrance yeah get an opening is something fell in then the process continues and it will now carve out what fell in and create it may be diverted or it may cut back through it and it's constantly having to uh, adjust for the fact that it is you know basically always weakening in certain areas as things change it's a very interesting it's they seem permanent because they happen so slowly but they are actually very uh, organic in the way they change. Yes, they are ephemeral, just not in the sense that we're used to. Yeah, not like a flower. It's like the uh, the whole concept of like uh, you know the supreme beings that barely notice a human life because their life is so vast. It's what seems like forever to us to a cave. Nothing noticeable happened. Yes, <laughs> it's very <laughs> these interesting. creatures falling in are but blips. Yep. And what's super interesting about all that, right, that this, again, this notion of this being a constantly developing system, the fact that caves are so sprawling means that there's always new stuff to find. And in fact, the Naracourt Caves are still, not only are we still discovering (laughs) new deposits in the caves, we're still discovering new caves. Yeah, yeah. It was about 10 years ago. The last I've heard, there might be more than this, but the last I've heard, there was a new cave discovered about 10 years ago (laughs) by a local landowner that paleontologists went into it and it was full of fossils. (laughs) I don't know if this new cave has an official published name yet, but it was featured in a documentary that came out very recently. It was actually a dinosaur documentary, so I'm not sure how they excused weaseling this cave in there. I wasn't able to find... Yeah, yeah. Uh, a clip from the documentary. <laughs> There's also new fossils being discovered as people explore. Especially, I found this very interesting anecdote out of one of the reviews that I read that, again, the caves are used for multiple purposes. And in at least one case, in Blanche Cave, way back to the beginning, that first cave, there is an area that has yielded good late Pleistocene fossils that for a long time was sediment that was being used for school kids to pretend to dig for fossils in. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure there's tons of other anecdotes that people who work down there could relate. In total, according to the Australian Museum website where I read this, it is estimated that fewer than 1% of these cave system has been explored and excavated for fossil resources wow and in addition to finding new stuff we're always developing new ways to approach it there was in the news not too long ago the naracourt cave system was featured because paleontologists got a huge new grant a big new collection of funding to not only explore more in the caves but to use new techniques, including 
and there's a cool video of this that we will post on the blog, a project to 3D laser scan the caves <sighs> to map them. Oh, that's so cool. And there is a video. This was on the Nara Court Herald. There's a story about this. And again, it'll be in the blog post where they traveled through the cave and had a scanner that scans all the surfaces and then maps it onto a virtual map. Just like the movie so, The Cave. Yeah, <laughs> the video is you travel through this digital reconstruction of the cave. That's so cool. And I think I mentioned at SVP, Blaine Schubert showed me the video of his group is doing that with his sinkhole caves ah, down in Mexico. That's and awesome. And that's being able to 3D map the structure of a cave is a huge boon to studying the geological history oh, yeah. of it. Uh, and that can help you identify where you're going to best look for new finds, new evidence there. And it just looks super cool. Oh, that's it's it's awesome sci-fi stuff. And when you map a cave, it makes sense that you would then be able to find your way out of it. So, yes, it is. <laughs> looking looking at you, Prometheus. Breadcone. Bread <laughs> Take that, Prometheus. And what was the what was the uh, was it the descent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a cave movie. That was a weird cave. That was a weird cave movie. I like the cave. It's a it's a cheesy monster movie, but I love it. <laughs> so there you have it, folks. The Naracord Cave System. Site of lots of great fossils, wonderful insights into the history of Australia, and exciting and ongoing research. Indeed. I, I love the mental image of them finding new rooms just for the idea of someone being like, Hey, have you guys checked for fossils in this room yet? There's not a room over there. Mm, yeah, yeah, there is. <laughs> <laughs> that we uh the the cave in South Dakota that I used to excavate in, there was a passage that the people there had always known about mm -hmm. that went deep into the cave, but it was super tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no one ever wanted to go down there until the year that a couple of students volunteered to do it. And and they were never heard from again. <laughs> <laughs> they put their helmets in front of them and pushed them along and squeezed through this tiny passage and came out in another room. And in that room, there was someone had signed the wall <laughs> in, if I remember correctly, the 1890s. Wow. <laughs> so not only are places newly discovered... Places can be discovered, forgotten about, and then discovered again. Because <laughs> he signed it, he came out and he went, yeah, that wasn't worth it. <laughs> that was, guys, no. No one's ever going to see my name in there. No, that was, that was terrible. That was it. I'm going to have nightmares forever. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot more uh, going on in the Narcourt Caves. There's a lot of studies that have come out of it. There's a lot of great resources online. As always, we will compile these in the blog post Yeet. that goes along with this episode, including places where you can follow up for more research and places that you can keep an eye on for updates. There are some uh, websites and, and uh, people online who uh, are good to follow if you're interested in keeping up with the caves. I followed some new sources <laughs> during my research here. <gasps> Thanks. Again, to our requester, Adam, for suggesting this fascinating topic. Yeah, this is a fun one. Thanks to our listeners for listening. Thanks again for our patrons for supporting April's podcast episodes. 
As always, we are always looking for feedback. If there is a subject you'd like to hear about, if there is a topic you like, if there is a question you have, contact us. We're on social media. We are on, we got an email, commonsensepodcast at gmail.com. Requests and feedback are always welcome. Literally always. We release new episodes every fortnight, so keep an eye out two weeks from the release of this episode for more. But there will also be extra fun bonus stuff happening in the in-between times in coming up soon. In-between calls, yes. So keep an eye out. There will be more than just the regular fortnightly release coming up. If you're interested in those things, keep an eye on our social media and stuff for updates. Yeah, it's very exciting. And I believe that that's it, that's, sir. That's that's all we I got. We have plumbed the depths yep, all done. of this topic. That's not true. We have not plumbed the depths <laughs> all, of this topic. Yeah, we, have, we, we, have, we finished. We've Yeah, that's it. We've They can pull out of those caves now. Yeah, we've, that's we've it. exhausted <laughs> the, the resources of that cave system. What, you know, everything, everything that needs to be known. This is it, listeners. We did it. Right here on this podcast. Hey, paleontologist, listen to this episode. <laughs> it's, episode 32. It's, you're good <laughs> to go. information you need. Go, go check out China or something. Yes. <laughs> Find another cave. Come to the Great Fossil site. <laughs> and with that, we leave you. We will see you next time. Goodbye, listeners. Toodaloo. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.